Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning. It's great to see you all this morning. I hope you're, you're ready to jump into God's Word. Amen? We're going to keep going in this series we've been doing, uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Today we're in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to warn you before we get to today, we're going to talk about a topic I bet many of you have never heard preached on. But probably about 98.7%, I'm estimating, um, aren't going to like. And so let's jump into God's word, but let's pray first, because our hearts are going to naturally resist this. Let me pray. Father, we come before you as your children, bought at an incredible price, the blood of your son Jesus, and we are thankful for you. We're thankful for what you've done for us, and we believe that you want what's best for us. And uh, you're going to speak to our hearts today, and some of us aren't going to like it. God, I pray that we would submit to you. We would trust you, trust that you're good, trust that you want what's good for us. Father God, will you speak? Will you peel back layers? Will you deal with desires? Will you change hearts and change minds? We sang that you're turning lives around. Will you turn us around? In areas where we're prone to wander and stray, speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have you ever forgotten anything significant? Like not just did you forget something. Have you ever forgotten something or someone significant? And as I was thinking about that this week, I was reminded when I was a youth pastor, I was about 22 years old, uh, youth pastor at this church, about 400 people up in Flint, Michigan, and we didn't have the blessings that we have here at this church where we got people that are in charge of the facilities that make sure, you know, the alarms are on and the doors are locked. It's just kind of the way that we rolled was. There were a few pastors on staff. Whoever was the last one there that day would make sure they locked up the doors. And there was one Sunday, I remember, I was the last one there. I was getting in my car, and I remembered I had forgotten something. So I went back up to the building, and when I opened the door, there was this kid running out through the church. He's about eight, 10-year-old, blonde hair, blue-eyed kid. And I looked at him, I said, what are you doing here? He's like, my parents forgot me. It was the pastor's son. And I said, I'll hop in the back of the car. I put him in the back seat of my car, I drove over to the pastor's house. And we got there, I said, just wait in the car for a second. I went up to the door, knocked on the door. Pastor comes out, he's looking at me like, well, I just saw you, like, why are you here? He's wearing just a t-shirt, he's got all his pastor clothes off, and he's wearing just a t-shirt, and he's standing there. And I said, I have something that belongs to you. He said, oh yeah, what? Your son. You should have seen the look, at, the look on his face, like, ter- like terror, panic, relief, like all at the same time. And he calls his wife, I thought you had him. She said, I thought you had him. Then of course, as a pastor, he talks about when Mary and Joseph did that with Jesus. He's like, you know, at least we're in good company. You know, they left Jesus at the temple. And so he talks about that. Have you ever forgotten something? Maybe like my pastor back there, a kid. <laughs> or maybe something, we've probably all had that moment where you've lost your keys, can't find your key, and you're running late, of course, at that moment when you lose your keys. Or you think you threw something away. Do you ever dig through the garbage? Because you, you threw something away on accident, you're doing that. Or I do this a lot more now than I ever used to do it. Do you ever walk into a room, or like I'll go out in the garage, and I'll be like, why am I here? I don't know, just keep living life. Who knows all the things I'm forgetting, right? Today we're talking about an element of the Christian life that I believe is a forgotten element for most of us. Today we're talking about something it's dangerous to forget because it can limit our intimacy with God. It can kind of dull our dependence on him. It can almost short circuit our connection to him. Today we're talking about fasting. And I'm gonna bet that many of us here are just ignorant when it comes to fasting. And probably most of us have never heard a sermon on fasting. Maybe we've heard it mentioned in a sermon. I bet you, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you've heard sermons on money. I bet everybody here who's been at church at any amount of time has heard a sermon on money. If I said, how many of you have heard a sermon on money? Almost every hand would go up. How many of you have heard a sermon on prayer? Almost every hand would go up. How many of you have heard about fasting? I've heard it mentioned, I think. My doctor told me to do it for a blood test. Yeah. 
trickles off. The interesting thing in the Bible is that it's actually mentioned more than some other important topics, like baptism. Baptism is mentioned about 75 times in the Bible. Uh, Fasting is talked about 77, 78 times in the Bible. It's talked about quite a bit, but it's like we've forgotten it. And so I've titled today's message, The Forgotten Fast. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. It's just a few verses. Matthew chapter 6, again, in this incredibly popular sermon that Jesus preaches called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We've been going through it. And remember, at at the pinnacle of his popularity, he sits down on a mountain and he begins to speak to people about their felt needs, about their desire to be happy. And really the summary of the whole sermon is that, that God's going to do a work in our hearts that's spiritual transformation that leads to gospel saturation. That he's so going to change our hearts from the inside out that it leaks out of our lives, that it overflows into the world around us, that we experience spiritual transformation, verses 1 through 12, that leads to gospel saturation. That summary is in verse 16 of Matthew 5. I'll read it to you again. This is my way of review. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. What good works? And give glory to your Father, not to you, who is in heaven. And then what he does in verse 17 through the the rest of chapter 5 is he says, here's what these good works are. Here's what you think. And six times he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he changes some of our thinking about what real righteousness is. Then in chapter 6, he starts talking about, here's what it looks like lived out. And he talked to us about genuine generosity. When you give, don't be like the hypocrites. Give like this. And he talked to us about prayer. When you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. Pray like this. And today he talks about fasting. Look at it with me, verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. That sounds familiar. That's kind of the pattern we've heard through prayer and giving. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now here's the deal. What we're talking about here is dangerous stuff. Because remember, Jesus wants to change us at the heart level, not just the behavior level. His goal is not to get you to be good little children of God who you know, have all good manner. He wants you to be a warrior to win this world to Christ. And so he wants to transform you at a heart level, at a desire level. It's dangerous, though, when we start messing around with desires. And so what's going to happen for some of you, we talk about fasting today, you're naturally going to resist this for a lot of reasons. Some of you, you think to yourself, I get hangry. I'm not myself when I don't eat. And I'm supposed to love my neighbor. And so you'll come up with Bible ways to rationalize yourself out of this, right? Some of you, you'll think through, you know, some bad experience you had one time when you tried fasting and you don't want to danger yourself to be a hypocrite and you'll come up with a reason. Some of you have medical reasons. Listen, I almost said I'm not a doctor, but it made me think, I say to my family all the time, like, oh, I'm a doctor, I can do these medical things. But I remember when I got my doctorate in ministry, one of my daughters came up to me and she said, can you write prescriptions? I said, no. <laughs> she said, do you do surgeries? No. And as she's walking away, she goes, well, what good was that? <laughs> like, all right. Listen, if you might have medical issues, there are some medical issues where this would be dangerous. I'm your pastor, not your physician. Talk to your doctor. But what you're gonna see in the Bible is there's ways to fast that aren't just about food. In fact, married couples, you might talk about this one at lunch, 1 Corinthians chapter seven, you abstain from sexual intercourse with one another for a time, for prayer, to focus on God, for a short time, it says. There's other things, they didn't have Facebook then. Could be Facebook. But we're gonna naturally come up with reasons why we would not do this, do you know why? Because we're messing with your desires. For some of us, the real reason is we're in bondage to food. For some of us, it's that we don't really desire God that much. And so when we start messing with desires, I know that's dangerous. I know some of you might be mad at me when you leave here today. 
And I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking about how there's different personalities, different desires. And it's like at our house, we've got two dogs. They're both miniature dachshunds. I brought pictures of them, actually. Yeah, and that shows their personality some. The dog on your right is my dog, Sparty. He's like a puppy forever. He's a couple years old, but he still looks like a puppy. On the left is Noble. Noble is the laziest dog you've ever met in your life. And so, like, Sparty, if I take a ball and I throw it for Sparty, he'll chase it 100 times. If I've thrown balls at Noble that have hit him in the face and he doesn't move, it's like, there it is. Yep, there we go. When, when I go to, in the morning, that we keep him in our laundry room. When I go in the laundry room in the morning, Sparty's up. It's like he's been pacing around, like, when are you going to get in here? Noble's laying out like, I'm not moving for a week. Like, it's just, he's just there. And, but I remember one time I had given them both some pizza crust. Don't do that, kids. And uh, I'd given them both some pizza crust, but then Noble was in my way when I was trying to get something out. He was standing in front of this basket. I want to get to this basket. And I, as I was leaning down, he started growling at me. And I was like, I'm not going to take your pizza crust. I just gave you the pizza crust. And so I grabbed him by the ribs to like slide him over. He bit me. I'm like, this dog went from snooze, you know, snooze button guy to like some wild watchdog because he thought I was going to mess with his desires. And some of us, we get that way. And I know that some of you are going to be upset about some of the things we say today, but here's my hope in today's message, that I whet your appetite for fasting. Because a lot of times all we think about is how painful it's going to be, what I'm giving up, what the sacrifices are, but we miss the whole point. Because you can fast like that, and that's not even Christian, by the way. What makes it Christian is that it's got a biblical purpose and so I want to pop up a slide for you. It's just a 10 points. It's not, there are not going to be 10 points on today's sermon. But if some of you like to take pictures and things like that, I'm not even going to go over it. But to show you there's a whole lot more to say about fasting. Oh, we don't have that slide. Never mind. All right. I emailed you. Any rate. <laughs> Drake's going like this in the back. Don't call for that slide. Hey, listen. Let me give you a reference point then. Don Whitney's written a book. And you guys can write this down. Those of you who like to look up other stuff. It's called uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. He's got a whole chapter. Chapter 9. And in it, he lays out 10 different um, purposes for fasting. We're not going to cover all that today. There's a whole lot to say about fasting. I'm not going to say everything there is to say about fasting. But I'm going to say something. So you won't be able to leave here today and say, I've never heard this preached on. You won't be able to plead ignorance. And so we'll talk about three reasons why. The first one is this. We'll come right from our passage today that we were just reading. It's that we fast to increase our intimacy with God. And this is the underlying reason behind all the reasons. You'll see repentance and grief and all kinds of things you'll see through the scripture. But underlying all of it is this. We fast to increase our intimacy with God. I intentionally use that word increase because most of us, when we think about fasting, just think about what we decrease. Like, I'm going to not eat food. I'm going to give up this thing. I'm going to stop this. I'm abstaining in some way. And we forget the idea that what we're actually doing it for that makes it biblical is what we get, not what we lose, you see, oftentimes, sacrifice, we think about it in this, this way where it's just like this self-infliction bad thing, but you think about, we've been singing about the gospel all morning. Jesus Christ didn't come to earth because he loved the cross. He came to earth because he loved you. He endured that. He's willing to give up his life. Why? Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy set before him, which was relationship with you. The very fact I can even make a point about intimacy is because what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, when he died, took the wrath of God on himself because that's what your sin and my sin deserve and gave his life. So, because he had joy set before him. And so what is it? Why is it that we give up food for a day, a couple days? Because we're saying we want you, God. We're going after you in this. There's... Pastor Matt Chandler said, and I think we do have this as a quote on there, that the way to abundance 
is abstinence when he's talking about fasting. So we don't just think about what we give up. Think about what you're getting. John Piper wrote a book. It's probably the best resource I've seen on this topic. It's called A Hunger for God. I brought a copy here. But in that book, he says this about fasting. Fasting is a periodic and sometimes decisive declaration that we would rather feast at God's table in the kingdom of heaven than feed on the finest delicacies of this world. So in other words, fasting is actually feasting. It's abstaining from something so we can have abundance in something else. We're fasting from food so we can feast on God. We're saying, God, I I do want to eat, but I'm more hungry for you than I am hungry for food. I've got one friend, the way that she describes it is she says, it's like we've got something in our hand and in order to grab a hold of something else, we've got to put that thing down. So we're putting something down so we can pick something else up. And many of us, you're upset about fasting because you've got your hands so gripped on this world that you can't grab a hold of the next. And fasting does that in our hearts. And notice in this passage, Jesus assumes we will do it, which is very, it might be the most significant thing in this passage, is the way he speaks about it in verse 16. He says, and when you fast, so there's an assumption that we will fast. It's the same way that he's talked about giving. If you look in your Bible, if you've got a copy of the Bible, you can scroll up a little bit. It says in, in verse two, when you give, And then in verse five, and when you pray. Now here's the interesting thing about that. Is that giving is commanded in the Bible. If you don't give, you're being disobedient. Prayer is commanded in the Bible. If you don't pray, you're being disobedient. Fasting is not commanded for a New Testament believer. In the Old Testament for Jews, it was commanded for one day. Leviticus chapter 16, you can read it. It was on the Day of Atonement. They would fast. But Jesus, he fulfilled that commandment. Colossians tells us that he is our atonement. He paid for, died in our place, our sins, at the cross. So as a New Testament believer, you're not actually commanded to fast. But Jesus still assumes that you will. He speaks about it the same way he speaks about something that's commanded. He says to his followers, and when you fast, and then he tells how not to fast. It's like a false fast. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen. Now that's a wordplay. That's kind of ironic there. They make themselves unrecognizable in order to be recognized, verse 16. They disfigure their faces, they're changing things, letting everybody know that they're fasting, and that's not a biblical fast. There's a lot of fasting that happens that's not biblical. That's not all wrong. Some people fast for health reasons, intermittent fasting, they're trying to lose weight. Some people fast because the doctor told them you're gonna blood test in the morning, you're having surgery in the morning. It's not like when the doctor tells you, you know, you're gonna have a blood test, this is my fast with you, Jesus. We're gonna get this cholesterol down, Jesus. It's not wrong. It's just not biblical. Biblical fasting is when you're fasting for a biblical purpose, like we see in the Bible. And underlying all that is intimacy with God, which is what Jesus shows us when he tells us how to fast. He tells us how not to fast in verse 16, but verses 17 and 18 are how to fast. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. That's normal hygiene. Shave, don't try to look all like you do. Everybody ask you, what's going on? Oh, I'm just fasting. <laughs> that, your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, corporate fasting isn't wrong. We see that in the Bible. And so just maybe as a principle, you can get this. It's not wrong to be seen fasting. It's wrong to fast to be seen. It's again, he's going after the heart. It's not wrong, like if somebody finds out, like if you're, you're you know, you dinner table and your spouse says hey I made dinner and you're like I'm, 
I'm not eating tonight. Well, you don't like this? And they said, don't start a fight. It's like, fasting today. It's okay. But if you come in like, oh, thanks for the great meal, but I can't eat today. Me and Jesus, flag, you know, flagging your stuff. I'm just fasting. That would be sin. Not a sin to be seen fasting. It's a sin to fast to be seen. But what Jesus says here is he says, who needs to know? God. Why? Because about him. Could there be more intimate language than right here? The Father who sees in secret or reward in secret is just between you and him. There's this intimacy here because what you're doing in your fast is about you and him. You're seeking to increase your intimacy with him, and he assumes you're gonna do this. In fact, we get an even better picture of it a little bit later in Matthew. In Matthew chapter nine, John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus, and they say, why don't you fast? Now, Jesus did fast. He was fasting in Matthew chapter four for 40 days in the wilderness. But Jesus was known as someone, he, he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because he was always feasting. Here's what you need to know. When Jesus comes back, there's not gonna be fasting. In the kingdom, it's a feast. But while he's gone, we fast because it shows our longing for him. So he, said, he talks about that in Matthew chapter nine when these disciples of John the Baptist come. It says in, in verse 14, give you the context, then the disciples of John the Baptist came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast? Real question. John the Baptist was a follower of Jesus. They're not trying to mess with him or test him like sometimes when he gets questioned. And Jesus said to, him, to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. That's the cross. From, then, from them. And then they will fast. So there's going to be fasting, but when we're face to face, this is celebration. But while I'm gone, there's longing. And the analogy he uses here of a, a bridegroom and a bride. Have you ever seen newly married couples? Like they, they're all giggles. <laughs> I get to do premarital counseling sometimes. They'll come into my office. They can't stop touching each other. I was like, I'm like, have some kids, I'll fix that. <laughs> I don't say that, I don't say that too. I might think it sometimes, but I don't say that. <laughs> and they're all, you know, just can't be away from each other. And then you separate them, for, and it's like the heart starts to long more. I saw a video that went viral the other day of this guy who had been separated from his girlfriend for a while, and when he was surprised that she was coming to the airport, he didn't know why he was at the airport, he fell down and he's like, she's so beautiful. And the lady who was playing the video was like, I wish my man would say that to me every day. But what you're seeing is that heart longing. That's what Jesus is referring to here. He says, you'll fast when I'm gone because your heart's gonna long for me. When we're together, we celebrate, we're face to face. But when I'm after the cross, we're in the season of fasting now. He says, he says there in that passage, he doesn't command it. He just says, they will, they will fast. It's like probably my favorite psalm. There's some great psalms. We read a psalm this morning. I love Psalm 139, Psalm 23. There's like some great ones, but probably my favorite one is Psalm 63. Psalm 63 in verse one says this, right before verse one even, I don't even know what that's called, those little words they put before verse one, somebody knows that. They gave me a doctorate in this stuff, I don't even know what it is, but here it is. <laughs> a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now David's a king, he owns a palace. Why is he in the wilderness? In order to know the answer to that question, you gotta read 1 Samuel 15 through 19. And it tells you why he's in the wilderness. You ever been in the wilderness? Ever been in the wilderness of Judah? About to, next weekend, I'm about to take a group from our church, about 30 people from our church. We're gonna go, we're gonna be in the wilderness of Judah. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not an oasis. There's not much water there. Verse one says this, O God, you are my God. 
Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Now here's David, and if you read 1 Samuel 15 through 19, what you find out is that he's fleeing from his son Absalom. Absalom's trying to take his throne. Okay, so that's why he's in the desert, but why would his son do that? Let me tell you why, and this, is, this should be a confrontation to some of us as fathers here in the triangle, because this runs rampant through the triangle, is that David's been awesome at his job. Saul killed his thousands. David is tens of thousands. David can play the harp. David's a poet. David's a warrior. David's a king. David is a terrible father because he's passive. And there's been problems with the kids. Amnon raped Tamar. You know what David did about it? Nothing. So Absalom got ticked, and he killed Amnon. Yeah, there's some, there's some crazy stuff going on here in David's family. And Absalom, it's not just that he's hungry for power. He's angry at his father. His father wouldn't lead. And so he's politically positioned himself to make an overthrow against his father. And now David's fleeing out into the desert, and he's out here in this place where everything in your life would dictate you want water. And he says, I want you, God. He says, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, my soul thirsts for you. Most of us probably haven't been in the desert of Judah. I bet most of us have been in a spiritual desert before. Something's going on in your life and you feel like your prayers just aren't, aren't doing anything. You don't even want to pray sometimes. There's stuff that makes you feel like you want to drift. Maybe do I really even believe this stuff? I was looking, thinking about this week. Somebody needs to write a book, like Lessons in the Desert. Because there's this theme through the Bible where God does a work in those times that he doesn't do in other times. The Israelites, they're wandering for 40 years. Jesus, 40 days in the desert. John the Baptist in the desert. David here in the desert. And then some of you, you know what it's like to get in that place and then God meets you in that place and he grows your roots down deeper than when you're in the oasis. And can I tell you something about our area? It's great. I mean, you know, number two place to live, number five place to live, like great jobs and PhDs and education and all that. It's a spiritual desert here. Everything in the desert tells you you want water. Everything in RDU tells you you want power, money, sex, praise. When we're fasting, it's like we're putting ourselves intentionally in the spiritual desert. And when those hunger pains come, we go, oh, when's the next meal? When's it? No, I'm intentionally doing this. What for? For intimacy with God. No, I want you. My body's telling me that I want food, but I want you more than I want food. Oh God, you are my God in a dry and weary land. My soul longs for you. That's part of the purpose of fasting. Why would we fast? To increase our intimacy with God. But not just that. We fast to seek guidance from God. We fast to seek guidance from him. And that quiet and that secret place that's talked about here in, in verses 17 and 18 here, there's a, there's, a, there's a sharpening of our prayers. There's a laser focus in our prayers. And we see it all throughout the Bible of people that are seeking guidance from God that there's fasting there, but I bet many of us, because this is the forgotten part of the Christian faith, we just read past that. Have you ever read Paul's story in Acts chapter nine? I know some of you are skeptics, agnostics, atheists, you should go read that story. And what happens is that God intentionally puts this guy, this guy's against the church, and he's trying to persecute Christians, arrest them, throw them in jail, some of them killed. And he's on his way to do that, and God meets him, puts him in a desert, physically blinds him. And many of us know that, but you know what? Right in the same verse where it says that he's blind for three days, it says he was fasting. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 9, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. 
He's seeking God's guidance. And you know what the text goes on to say? The scales fall from his eyes. He's able to see. And you know what's revealed to him? You're supposed to preach to Gentiles and you're going to suffer a lot. That's God's plan for your life. You seek God's guidance? Do you fast? Do you ever seek him in that way? The church did it. The early church did it. Acts chapter 13, verse 2. The early church is praying about what do we do? And you know what? The Holy Spirit spoke to them during their fast. It says in Acts chapter 13 and verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, this wasn't a verse they read. It's like put on their heart. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Because this is one of those decisions. It's not like Bible, not Bible, sin, not sin. It's like what do we do? What do we? And some of you got decisions to make. Like who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to go to school? Should I keep working for this company? What, what do you want me to do? Is this all there is? Am I just supposed to pay bills? Is this, like God, is there more to life? We'll throw up a prayer here. But there's a laser focus that happens when you start fasting. You fast to seek guidance. Some other examples. Esther, in the book of Esther, she's about to risk her life before the king. Listen to what she says. Esther chapter four, verse 16. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, Hold a fast on my behalf. So she wants other people to fast too. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Not water either. And, and I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So I'm fasting for strength, because what I need right now is not physical strength. I need spiritual strength to do what God wants me to do. And there's a whole nation that hangs in the balance. Let's fast. One of my favorites is Nehemiah. Nehemiah is 850 miles away from the problem he hears about. So talk about, that somebody else can deal with that. And I think about some of the emails and text messages I've received from some of you since I shared, I don't know, about a month ago, about the statistics of where we're headed, not just as, a, as Southbridge, but like as a church in America, of young people leaving the church. I shared, you know, it was between 28 and 42 million people that are currently living in self-identified Christian homes are gonna walk away from the faith because they think it makes no difference Several of you, what do we do? How about this idea? And sharing different things. That shows your heart's burdened. There's a problem. I've told you before, six out of 10 people you bump into on a regular basis are headed for hell. That's a problem. What are we gonna do? Well, Nehemiah hears the walls are down and his people are in shame, 850 miles away. Listen to what he says in Nehemiah chapter one, verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying for the God of heaven. You know what God did? God gave him a vision for what to do. He wasn't the first person to hear the problem. There were a whole bunch of people living in the midst of the problem. I told you that our elders were praying about what's next. God didn't just bring us to this facility and just bring us to this, these people to get fat and comfortable and, oh, isn't Jesus awesome, kumbaya. No, he sent us on mission to reach this community for Christ. What does he want us to do? What's next for us? We fast? Ask him about that? Even Jesus. Jesus knew God's plan, but he fasted. In the context of this passage, Matthew chapter six, we've got this, here's how to live this out, but remember Matthew chapter five is where he started preaching. You know what happened right before that? Matthew chapter four, when he's in the desert with Satan being tempted, but you know what it says about that? And after fasting, Matthew four, verse two, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, you think. Thank you for that observation, Matthew. But he's setting up what he's about to say in verse three. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. It's just interesting, because when you dive into this time in the desert that he spent, 
you'll find that everything that happens in that passage of Scripture parallels what happened to the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. It's 40 years. Jesus was 40 days. Make some miraculous bread if you're God. <laughs> Have you read what happened when they were in the wilderness? The manna from heaven? This would seem right. But Jesus is in a laser focus of God's plan. And part of the discipline he uses, like a weapon in his tool belt, is fasting. In fact, I told you about this book, A Hunger for God, from Piper. I got a powerful quote that stuck out to me. It's kind of long, but I'm going to read it to you. He's talking about this passage in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is fasting, and he says this. It seems to me that this story should shake us. Here is Jesus standing on the threshold of the most important ministry in the history of the world. On his obedience and righteousness hangs the salvation of the world. None will escape damnation without this ministry of obedient, suffering, and death, and resurrection. And God wills that, at the very outset, this ministry be threatened with destruction, namely the temptations of Satan, to abandon the path of lowliness and suffering and obedience. And of all the hundreds, and you could say thousands, and since God can make stuff up, billions of things Jesus might have done to fight off this tremendous threat to salvation, he's led in the spirit to fast. Why wouldn't we? And we're seeking God's guidance. But we need his strength. See, we fast to increase our intimacy with him. We fast to seek guidance from him. We fast to deepen our dependence on him. Go back to our passage, Matthew chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Look at what he said right there, Matthew chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What's the reward? Of course, it's intimacy with him. Of course, he's the reward. Some people think that part of the reward ties in the prayer that we just talked about, the Lord's Prayer, that your name would be hollowed through my life, that you'd be set apart as different as I seek you and seek more intimacy with you, that your will would be done in my life. How do we get to a place and we say, not my will, but your will be done? And we're continually asking, you know, we're told why some of our prayers don't get answered. It's in James chapter four. Because your selfish prayer. You pray that you might spend it on yourself. All your stuff's about you. How can we, so many of us are like in bondage to food, in bondage to comfort, and we're asking God to fill more comforts, and we're wondering why he doesn't answer that. And then fasting, it deepens our dependence because we're taking away something. God created food. Food's not bad. Don't hear the wrong thing in this message today. Some good food. He didn't have to make it taste like anything. He did. Amen. We could have dry ramen noodles for every meal. We don't have to do that. College is over. But we're taking something that he created as good that we depend on and saying, I'm not gonna depend on that because I wanna increase my dependence upon you. I heard one story, it was a powerful story this week, a true story, about a guy who's a duke in the 14th century. His name was Renald III, if you wanna look it up. And Renald III was, um, he was an overweight man. In fact, his nickname was Crassus, which means fat. So, real creative nickname. And he got in a quarrel with his brother. His brother's name was Edward. And Edward came, conquered, found him, captured him. Instead of killing Ronald III, he built a room around him that kept him as a prisoner. But the interesting thing about the room was it didn't have a lock on it. It had a couple windows and an almost normal-sized door. But because he was so large, he couldn't get out of the room unless he were to diet and lose some weight. And Edward knew that his brother wouldn't diet and so he sent delicious foods to him every day. 
And while he was there, he actually grew larger. He kept him as a prisoner in that room for 10 years. And when people would accuse Edward of being cruel, he would say, he's not a prisoner. He's able to leave whenever he so wills. But he was a prisoner of his own appetite. He was imprisoned there because of his own bondage. And what God does in fasting is, and this is one of the reasons why we don't like talking about it, is he deals with some of our desires, and a lot of our desires aren't for him. And what fasting does is it starts to show that and reveal that to some of us and strip some of that from us. And God uses that then to create a laser focus on him that increases our intimacy, and we seek his plan, and it sharpens our prayers. Now, fasting is not. Now, here's what some people think fasting is. It's like, we're gonna get God to do what we want him to do. Like if I just prayed, all right, I've been praying for healing, this person hasn't been healed, so I'm gonna pray and fast, and it's like doubling up. No, it's not like a trick to manipulate God. David fasts that his child with Bathsheba wouldn't die, and the child dies. And then he goes and he starts eating and acting normal, and people are like, why are you doing that? He's like, well, God didn't answer that prayer. Why am I fast? I'm not mourning anymore. So it's not to manipulate God, but what it does is it creates a laser focus on our praying. I read you that Acts chapter 13, verse two passage. You think about the, the burden to put on our hearts, like what do you want us to do? All they did was they sent out two missionaries, Paul and Barnabas. Do you know that changed the world? If you go back to like how you heard the gospel, it goes to Acts chapter 13. Because up until that point, the gospel hadn't gone west at all. Then this is the first missionary movement that's gonna take the gospel into Rome, which is then gonna lead to Christianity, which was this like obscure sect of religion turning into the dominant religion in the Roman Empire in about 200 years. This is gonna eventually bring the gospel to America. This is eventually gonna lead to 13 of the 27 New Testament books that are written here. Comes down to that prayer and fasting in Acts chapter 13 and verse two. That now there's over two billion Christians in the world today. And you think about, like, oh, who are we as Southbridge and there's the city's big and then the nation's bigger and then the world's bigger. Like there's a smaller group right here in Acts chapter 13 it literally changed the world because they were going, God, we're not playing games. Like, what do you want us to do? And we're gonna do that. And in order to have a focus on that, we're gonna fast. So what do, what do we do? What do you do with this message? Well, I would challenge you. This is one of those ones. It's not like some messages you hear, and you're like, that's gonna take a while. Yeah, it will. This is like, how about you don't have lunch on Wednesday? And not just so you can go like, yeah, I did that, but how about you not have lunch this, this Wednesday? So you, maybe there's something you've been praying about in your life and you wanna be more laser focused and praying. Maybe you wanna hear from God about what he wants to do. Maybe it's a child you wanna see come to Christ. Or maybe it's you know, some disease you've been praying would be healed. Or maybe it's some issue in your life that you wanna see change or circumstances. Or maybe it's just I wanna increase my intimacy with you, God. So every time, I, I'm not gonna go, what time's dinner? So I'm gonna go, oh, I want you. I'm gonna come to you and maybe your lunch break, that hour that you were gonna spend at lunch break, you go, I'm just gonna spend it with you, God. Maybe reading, maybe singing, maybe praying. This seems like it's too important to just forget in our faith. The applications, I could list 100 different scenarios. Maybe you fasted before. Maybe it's not just skipping lunch. Maybe it's, it's a day, or, or maybe it's you know, the church calendar. We've entered into Lent. Maybe you'll give up something for until Easter. Put something down so you can pick something else up and greater intimacy with God. 